This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Welcome to the future of California, people, place, and power. I'm Stephen Small, the director of the Institute for the Study of Societal Issues, which is the sponsor of today's event. I'm speaking to you from the city of Berkeley, which is in the territory of Huchun, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chechenyo alone. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the alone people. Every member of the Berkeley community has benefited and continues to benefit from the use and occupation of this land. And they've done so since the institution's founding in 1868. Consistent with the university's values of community and diversity, we have a responsibility to acknowledge and make visible the university's relationship to native peoples, and in particular, the way that the University of California as a land-grant university has benefited financially from the appropriation of native lands. By offering this land acknowledgement, I affirm our commitment to hold the University of California Berkeley more accountable to the needs of Native American people. Now, before we begin, I would like to thank the co-sponsors for today's event, the Department of African American and African African Diaspora Studies at the University of California Berkeley, the Asian American Research Center, the California Immigrant Policy Center, the California Initiative for Health Equity and Action, the California Nurses Association, California Reinvestment Coalition, East Bay Community Foundation, Goldman School of Public Policy, the Institute of Governmental Studies, the Joseph A. Myers Center for Research on Native American Issues, the Latinx Research Center, Northern California Grantmakers, the Othering and Belonging Institute, the San Francisco Foundation, Southern California Grantmakers, the California Endowment, and TURN, T-U-R-N, the Utility Reform Network. On behalf of all the co-sponsors, I want to mention that this is not a partisan event. We do not endorse any of the legislators or any of the legislation that will be discussed. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce Michael Drake, the president of the University of California, who will give welcoming remarks before we begin the panel discussion with the legislators. Dr. Drake is new to his role as UC president, but he's not new to the University of California. In fact, He received his MD degree from UC San Francisco, and then he spent more than two decades on the faculty there, including as the Stephen P. Shearing Professor of Ophthalmology. 
President Drake went on to serve as Chancellor of UC Irvine and as the system-wide Vice President for Health Affairs. He then left UC to serve as President of the Ohio State University, where he was there for six years, before returning to UC as President just last year. We're delighted to have him back and honored that he could join us today. Welcome, President Drake, and over to you. Well, thank you very much, Professor Small. It's an honor to welcome everyone to this evening's program. Tonight, we'll hear from some of our state's dedicated public servants on the challenges and solutions ahead and what they envision for the future of California. These are difficult times for all Californians and, in fact, for many people in our country and around the world. Many are confronting economic and mental health challenges. Many have lost loved ones during the pandemic. And we continue to live and to witness the pain of systemic racism in everyday life. The stress and strain of these issues are palpable. There is hope ahead, and a smart public policy is one crucial element fueling that optimism. California is a state built on bright ideas and sound facts, and that is true in the forward trajectory of California's public policy as well. Central to that, is California's robust public policy higher education system and the public education's higher education system broadly across our state, which sets this state apart from the rest of the nation. Since its founding, UC has been dedicated to serving the people of the state of California by providing access to a quality, affordable higher education, by advancing social mobility, by developing technologies that launch new sectors of our robust economy, and in many other ways. Across our 10 campuses, we are working to equip our state leaders and to inform public policy with evidence-based research. Those research solutions are helping California lead on climate action. They are helping our state root out racism in all its forms and to affect societal and institutional change. And they are helping to shed light on the many other challenges ahead for Californians, including housing, transportation, and poverty. These advances would not be possible without our ongoing partnerships with state and federal leaders. I want to thank Governor Newsom and our state legislature, especially the members who are here tonight, for their continued support for the University of California during this difficult time. And to our audience, thank you again for joining us this evening, and please enjoy what is sure to be a lively and informative conversation. Fiat looks, and back to you, Professor Small. Thank you very much, President Drake, for those thoughtful, sympathetic, and sensitive, as well as inspiring remarks. Now, I'm pleased to introduce the moderator of today's event, Marisa Lagos. Marisa will be asking her own questions, as well as questions from the audience. So for audience members, please use the Q&A feature to ask your questions. I also want to mention that we have automatic captioning enabled so that if you want to see that, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screen. Marisa Lagos is a correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk, and she co-hosts a weekly show and podcast, Political Breakdown. Lagos was nominated for a Peabody and won several other awards for her work investigating the 2017 wildfires. In 2011, 
She won a special award from Evident Change for her work in covering California justice issues. And I have to mention that she is also a UC alum. Over to you, Marisa. Thank you. Um, always got to slip that in. UC Santa Barbara, go Gauchos. Um, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and we should explain to the audience. Um, we are lucky enough right now to be joined by four lawmakers, but um, they could duck out and in, in and out because they are all in Sacramento trying to do the people's work and vote on bills. Um, so I'm going to introduce them all. And yes, um, I... <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Everyone's like texting me. So just if they disappear, just know it's because they're going to vote on something um, and maybe they'll come back and maybe they won't. Or maybe me and Assemblymember Ramos will just, you know, talk about San Bernardino County for an hour. Um, so I'm going to go through uh, their bios real quick. San Senator uh, Ana Caballero's district includes the Salinas Valley as well as Stanislaus, Merced and San ben Benito counties. Um, I think almost all of those counties, you like, you, you might have a record there. Um, she's worked as a legal advisor to farm workers and been in state and local government, including as a state assemblywoman and uh, previous to becoming a Senator, Governor Brown's Secretary of Business, Consumer Services and Housing Agency. Senator Caballero, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Assemblyman David Chu represents San Francisco in the state legislature. Previously, he was president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. He was the first Asian American to hold that post. Uh, Chu is chair of the Assembly Housing Committee, and he's previously worked as a prosecutor and a civil rights attorney. I know I'm leaving some stuff out there, but you know, he's, he's done a lot despite that face. Um, he also has an adorable son who's the same age as my youngest son and as Governor Newsom's youngest son. So we all like to trade uh, war stories when we get together. Um, Assemblymember uh, James Ramos is a member of the Serrano Cahia tribe and is the first Native American elected to the state legislature, if you can believe that. Uh, his assembly district covers most of San Bernardino County. He is a lifelong resident of the Manuel Indian Reservation and has served on the California State Board of Education, San Bernardino Community College Trustees, and the San Bernardino County Board of Supervisors. And I believe in all those positions may have been the first Indian to hold them. So um, a lot to talk about there when we talk about equity, assembly member. Um, Finally, uh, Senator Nancy Skinner represents Berkeley, Oakland, and Richmond, just across the bridge from me. Uh, she's also chair of the Senate Budget Committee and vice chair of the Legislative Women's Caucus. Uh, Senator Skinner's been an advocate for social justice and criminal justice reform over her long career in public service, which, fun fact, started when she was elected in 1984 as the first and only student to ever be elected to the Berkeley City Council. So I am surrounded by overachievers, as you can tell. Um, I'm not sure I was going to do this in alphabetical order, but um, now I'm, I'm going to do it in like who might leave first. So Senator Caballero, let's open with you. Um, the first sort of umbrella question we have is what is the most urgent challenge or opportunity you see facing California? And, you know, I'll just say you don't have to solve all the world's problems right now, but um, broad brushstrokes. Well, um, thank you very much, Marissa, for the opportunity to be here tonight. And uh, apologies that we're all in session in committees. And so we kind of ducked out. Um, let me just say that uh, my my answer would probably have been different if it had been pre pre COVID. Um, but I look at the world right now through the COVID lens. And um, the reality of the situation is my district is two thirds of the dis my district is in the Central Valley. And so it's a rural agricultural district. And what the COVID pandemic did is it put a spotlight on every fault and fracture 
uh, that the state has. Anything that we've done, we have not done a good job of solving was just magnified by this virus. And um, and I, I think it's fair to say that every single one of us have been running around like crazy trying to get PPE, trying to, trying to get vaccines, uh, delivering food. Uh, there, It's just been a myriad of issues. So from my perspective, the issues that are going to be front and center that we have to deal with is, is a recovery. How do we do a recovery when we've got these glaring um, differences in wealth in our community, the a huge difference in um, housing opportunities. We're 2.5 million housing units short, which has exacerbated our, our, um, our homeless population. And people are living in significantly overcrowded housing situations, which is why this virus ran so rampantly through some of the communities. Um, our our health care um, is inequitable, and it's, and it's pretty much based on income. We no longer require everybody to be covered. Um, our educational system has been devastated. Uh, again, magnifying for those individuals that, that had a hard time managing um, the internet. Um, and then, and by, by that I mean kids not being able to access the internet. The two little children that you saw sitting at the Taco Bell um, using their Wi-Fi were in my district, um, and that's not unusual. And so broadband access has been absolutely um, abominable in most of my district because um, they, there just is not enough access. So, so for me, recovering economically, getting people back to work, um, getting them good jobs, building the housing we need, making sure they have health care. Um, I have a fairly large undocumented population as well, and they were not eligible for most of the safety net services that we had. So it's it's the equity issues are going to be critically important. Um, and, um, and, and I have a very large immigrant population as well. And so um, language issues are, are an issue. So for me, it's going to be how do we recover in a way that makes us strong and gives people a sense that um, we're going in the direction. Just a few things there to unpack. Um, Senator Skinner, you have obviously a very different looking district, but some of the same disparities. I mean, what are you looking at as either challenges or opportunities? Well, ironically, while my district is urban, it has much of the same disparity in income that I probably have a few more wealthy, wealthy. I've got billionaires now in my district. When I first moved to uh, the area I live in, there were no billionaires. There are now multiple billionaires. However, there's the highest percent of mothers with children in poverty, single mothers with children in poverty of uh, any, I think I'm either first or second uh, in terms of senatorial districts in the state. But I thought my colleague, Senator Caballero, I, I was like, you, you characterized it brilliantly. And so what I, in terms of what the faults and fissures that the pandemic showed, which we knew we had. So what I'll add is that here we have this just bizarre circumstance where we know so many families and small businesses are in pain, economic pain, because of this pandemic. They've lost jobs or they, you know, any number of factors. <clears throat> they had to leave a job because they had no kids, no ability to have their kids in school or childcare. They had no other safety net. So incredible economic pain. And then we had the stock market soaring for the whole year. 
And so many of our wealthiest residents got wealthier than ever. And because of our fortunately very progressive tax rate, California had more money than ever. So the state has, you know, these great revenues, but people in this terrible pain. But the good news is, and Senator Caballero and I both experienced, we were both in the legislature during the last recession where that was not the case. California really didn't have revenue and we had to inflict more pain on people that were already in pain. At least now we have the opportunity to try to address some of these inequities like around homelessness, around healthcare, around so many other things, as we've already done, we gave direct stimulus grants already, not only to small businesses, but to households that were really hurt by the um, pandemic. And we're gonna hopefully in whatever budget we adopt with the combination of federal funds that are coming in and the revenues that we have do more good and begin the path of addressing these historic inequities because California has unfortunately for years had the largest percent of people in poverty when you consider our cost of living. And we wanna reverse that. So maybe there's an opportunity, maybe we can make lemonade out of the lemons of the pandemic. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Assemblymember Chu, since you might have to jump out next, um, what, what are your biggest priorities? I think they probably align with the, the senators as well. I think the good senators have have really well summarized uh, what are the most urgent challenges. And I think it, they all boil down really to one word that both Senator Caballero and Skinner have referenced, which is equity. The fact of the matter is this pandemic, this recession has shown a bright, bright, hot spotlight on folks who have it and are making it and folks who don't. And whether we're talking about who has access to our healthcare system, who has access to education at this moment, uh, who, is who has the ability to keep their job going or to continue to work versus who doesn't, um, who has access to housing uh, versus who's forced out on the street, it all comes down to equity. Um, maybe one other topic I'll just mention because it is another crisis on top of all the crises we've experienced this year. Uh, those of us all over the state have experienced climate in all sorts of very, very challenging ways. So whether it be wildfires or power shutoffs, uh, whether it be the orange skies, the fact of the matter is we're all working frantically to help our communities recover from the pandemic and the recession. But at the same time, we have this long-term or this crisis that is long-term in the making, but which we have to address right now. You know, We all know that if in the next couple of years, we don't turn the corner on addressing climate change, Climate crisis is happening, and uh, and we've got to figure this out. Twenty thirty is sort of that drop dead date when the world has to reverse its uh, its inexorable progress toward uh, increasing temperatures by two degrees Celsius, and and California has to lead and do our part. Thank you, Assemblymember, Mr. Ramos. Finally, getting to you. Um, I mean you represent communities that have never had equity in our society. So I'm curious like how you're approaching this moment because as everyone else noted, these are not shocking sort of fissures that we're recognizing, but I think for some people, maybe it's more recognizable than ever. No, I, I agree with my colleagues um, that, that, you know, COVID-19 and some of the different um, issues and, and environment now that's facing the state of California has only um, highlighted the need for, for issues that already have been um, part of what it is that California was struggling with, homelessness, mental health, um, suicide, all these other areas and, and housing um, were areas that, that California was also 
um, trying to address. But now with COVID-19, it has shown the disparities, even, even larger than what people even imagine um, with broadband access. When you talk about education achievement gaps, talking specifically about different uh, cohorts out there and the Native American community of why it's been so so underperforming and showing that the, the, the crisis of showing distance learning and now putting that together with trying to get equitable um, internet access for those. One of the things that we've also identified in some of the most um, hardest hit areas in our community, um, people of color, and we see that the underlying conditions of healthcare have uh, moved forward to heighten that um, the area of COVID-19 of positive tests and those succumbing to COVID-19. And we see it higher in the Native American population, the state of California, across the nation. And that goes back to healthcare and substandard healthcare that's there. Right. And, and even starting to address now where we're at as far as vaccines moving forward, trying to get out there and talk to um, those that to accept the vaccines, get the vaccine, there's hesitance to move forward. Some um, have different legitimate reasons, but when people um, in the educational process within the Native American community, when our older elders are resistant to take some of those vaccines, we have to truly understand that as late as the 1970s, there was a sterilization policy um, inflicted upon the Native American women, including the state of California. Yes. So once we bring that education full circle and we start to discuss that, that would start to open up um, why there's so much resistance. And, and when we start to see the opportunities of moving forward in the state of California, here on this panel, you have a diverse group with different ideas representing different people throughout the California um, state. But we also need to make sure that we're addressing those issues from the past to where we are to the present so that in the future we can continue to work together. Thank you. Uh, Senator Caballero, do you have time for a question before? Sure. Um, okay. Awesome. Until they drag me out of here. Okay, yeah, before they can drag you out of here, still talking. I'm curious, I mean, Senator Skinner kind of alluded to this, but we have had a, a kind of bit of whiplash when it comes to the state budget this year mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of what we expected at the beginning of COVID, how it's turned out. But then also the state is going to be getting billions of dollars from both the $1.9 trillion rescue plan and if the infrastructure and jobs bills pass, I mean, we're talking about really big investments in things like fighting child poverty. What do you see then as like, you know, but then as a, like, I'm a public school mom and I'm hearing like, well, in two years, we're going to have a terrible budget. So like, what do you see as the sort of short and medium term outlook? And, and, and more importantly, like, how can you all in your positions really make sure that that money is spent on fighting these intransigent issues instead of, you know, whatever, you know, the people see a difference. Like you want to make them see a difference, right? That's exactly right. So let me tell you, let me even make it more complicated than that. Um, there's no question that the state is going to get uh, money from the federal government, relief money. And then our budget is very, very healthy. And we're trying to figure out how do we put resources out there to help um to help people now where they're at right now? How can we get people back to work? Um, and then every single city and county is, they're getting money from the federal government as well. So the question becomes, how do we stimulate our economy 
it, so that we're getting the most bang for our buck, exactly what you're saying, which is two years down the road, once we have expended our resources, um, my, you know, my guess is this stock, stock market is not going to continue indefinitely. And we'll be back to a more normal kind of budget. And we need to make sure that we haven't grown government so much that um, we're having to shut down things that we started that were great ideas, but that we can't sustain long term, long term. And I think that's the the challenge that we have is is not to not to over promise, but to try to take the the state dollars that we have right now, try to figure out how do we. Um, work with our local governments as well so that we can get things done that they've wanted to do for years. What does that look like? I I don't know. Um, From my perspective, um, we have a serious water quality issue and water availability issue. So investing in water infrastructure to me seems to make a whole heck of a lot of sense. It puts people people back to work. Um, Those are the kinds of projects I think that if in my district, the number one issue pre-pandemic was um, the creation of good jobs. Um, most, a lot of the, the jobs are related to agriculture and people don't earn a lot of money. And so people are really interested in good jobs. So if we can create those good jobs all over the state, and I think probably um, Senator Skinner has the same issues in her district, um, people have moved into her district out of the San Francisco area because they can't afford to live there anymore, but they still need a good job. And so how do we, how do we do that in, in the short term so that in the long term, we have the resources at the state to do all the great things that we want to do? Uh, I want to ask you about that because I mean, you've known Governor Newsom for a long time, as have I. Um, he came in with very bold ambitions around things like early childhood education and childhood poverty and you know, increasing the minimum wage. A lot of these very expensive, but I think you would argue necessary progressive proposals. So how I mean, how do you see the ability to to do what the senator's talking about, which is not to kind of go too far and over invest in government, you know, programs that are either going to have to shrink or we have to pay for, but also uphold these promises that, quite frankly, you, most of you all campaigned on. We have to be really smart in using the dollars that we have. Um, And, uh, you know, I very much appreciate that Governor Newsom, before this pandemic, had laid out bold proposals on what we needed to do to address issues that are still ongoing. And despite the fact that he and all of us have been juggling crisis after crisis, plague after plague, um, we are still trying to stay focused on on the big things. So, you know, I'll talk about uh, one topic we haven't discussed, which is uh, we had hoped that homelessness was going to be at the top of the agenda uh, before uh, the pandemic hit. In fact, Governor Newsom had devoted the last state of the state address a couple of weeks before we went into shutdown on this very topic. And we haven't, um, I, I really have to applaud the governor for using federal dollars to do what has been likely the most successful short-term program to move people into uh, underutilized hotels and motels, Project Room Key and Home Key, to get thousands of folks off the streets. But as we've been doing this, even more people are becoming uh, homeless. And so uh, we are eagerly 
awaiting uh, the possibility of more federal stimulus dollars. And I know talking to mayors all over the state, um, there's this idea that we should make a very significant, at least one-time investment and in trying to get a handle on this. Um, but you know, I'll say, because we have the chair of the Senate Budget Committee here, um, we have to be very, very smart in how we use these dollars because we know they're not going to last. And we've got really a couple of shots to make some real impacts in, in addressing inequity. Uh, and we've got to use our, we've got to pick our moments uh, smartly. That seems like a good transition to you, Senator Skinner. I'm sure you have all the answers. But um, I mean, on housing and homelessness in particular, this is, I mean, I keep just thinking about how California is sort of painted um, often in the national press. Um, I, I don't know, it looks lovely outside my window, but if, if you listen to some networks, it's all on fire and it's going, you know, but, the, but it is true that we have a really horrible homeless crisis, that housing has been such a challenge. Um, I don't know, do you think this pandemic has moved the needle around any of those issues, nimbyism, the sort of challenge of, of connecting all these dots? I think that it's interesting. I think the, during the pandemic, well, the visual nature of, of our folks that have to live in encampments alone. I mean, no Californian can at all, I think, you know, rest at peace, think, rest easily knowing that we have, we're the richest state in the richest country in the world, and that we have this many of our brothers and sisters that are living that cannot afford a roof over their heads. And there's a lot of people that want to characterize it as, well, they're addicted or they have mental illness. And, you know, the, the fact is that that is not the majority of those people that can't afford a roof over their head. And the other fact is, is that if you go and talk to those folks who can't afford the roof over their head, they've lived in your community for years. They didn't come here from somewhere else. They just got priced out. And as you, as I think Senator Caballero pointed out and uh, Marisa, you pointed out, we created this problem. And when I say we, because we did not build enough housing for 40 years at minimum, 40, maybe 50 even, we did not. And some communities far worse than others. And unfortunately, my own community, the one I live in and I've lived in for a long time, Berkeley was one of the worst perpetrators of this. Now, Berkeley is beginning to be more open-minded. But what I found fascinating during this pandemic is the other thing that that became talked about much more. And it was moving up through other, there were other circumstances, the Trump admit, Trump being in the White House, various other things that caused more of white America, I would say. Well, more of those folks who are of color in America, sort of raising the issues of the way that racism has permeated so many things, legal and other, that have affected then ability for people to get housing, get education, or be incarcerated, or any number of things like that. And then, but in the pandemic, because some of us, so many of us were stuck at home, I think white America began to, you know, maybe not all, but began to look at these issues too. And you saw the reaction to say the George Floyd murder and such, but that also started raising a discussion about how our housing policies have in, have actually been very exclusionary and from a racial point of view. And that as much as we have wanted to, to preserve the character of our neighborhoods, what we haven't always understood is that preserving the character of our neighborhood, if our neighborhood is dominantly white and dominantly one income, means that we are cutting out 
other people. We have excluded lower income people, you know, or, and I don't even see lower. I mean, any, even middle-class people and of course people of color. So we're, we are, I think California is engaged in that conversation, whether we can do the change fast enough to address the issues, time will tell. But what I'm very hopeful about is that we will use these funds that we have right now and make a significant dent. And our colleague, Assemblymember Chu, mentioned, you know, short-term fixes. In fact, Project Home Key is not a short-term. Those properties were bought permanently. And so those folks that are housed are hopefully housed, you know, permanently. But of course, we have to both increase that a great deal, but then stop the flow, the creation of so many homeless people. And what with this pandemic-induced economic harm, we hope we want to make sure that we don't have people that end up leaving their where they live to avoid eviction because they can't afford or being foreclosed. So we're going to have to make three big investments. We're going to have to make big investments in rental assistance to keep people housed. We're going to have to make sure there's not a big foreclosure wave. And we have to make an investment to create new um, housing units for those who are homeless. And then I just wanted to, well, two other last points. I want to thank the University of California and the Institute of the Study of Societal Issues for hosting this. And I want to remind all of us, which I'm sure many of the listeners know, how critical our education system is in California and our incredible public universities, both CSU and UC system. And when we look at the UC system, some of the highest rated public universities in the world, and when we really look at who we're giving education to, so many of the students that graduate from our UC system are first-generation students, are students that um, who have very low income. But if you look at these private schools that are so fantastic and they give great scholarships and all, they don't have near the cross-section of economic diversity that our CSU and UC system has. And so, of course, we have to reinvest in those systems to keep that opportunity available. And then finally, I'm just really proud to have a colleague like Assemblymember Ramos, that California would, you know, we talk so much about we're trying to write various racial, but, you know, California really hasn't fully acknowledged or accepted its very extreme racial history in that, in effect, our, where we tried to wipe out our entire Indian population and very deliberately and very directly. It was not an accident whatsoever. And so many of us grew up without any understanding of it. I'm a native California. I had no understanding. I thought the only Indians in America lived in, uh, you know, the Navajo nation or that, you know, I knew about Navajos. I knew about, I had no concept until an adult that there were even any, any Indians in California or any of the role of California in wiping out a very huge population. So I just am so glad that we have a colleague and not that it should be on his shoulders. It is not to remind us of that. It is on all of ours to correct that history and to acknowledge that circumstance. Yeah, I wanna give you a chance to respond to that Assemblymember Ramos because it, um, it seems like we are starting to have many of these conversations more sort of broadly and and more directly. But, um, you know, I know 
like teaching Native American curriculum is still a huge issue, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? And how does that interplay into some of the bigger kind of equity issues we're talking about? Because it's not just about learning something in school, right? It's about putting it into action. Yeah, it truly is. And thank you, Senator, for those um, kind words um, and in recognition of the California um, people in the state of California. And, and it's true. I mean, the different acknowledgement um, and the land acknowledgement that took place here um, on this um, panel discussion, but it's true, right? I mean, we went from a period of, of being invisible to many to being forgotten by many. And then all of a sudden you see start economic development move forward on some reservations, but not all. And then people have one idea. We went from not even being acknowledged to now the stereotype of uh, casinos and, and, and tribes are doing well when that's far from the, the, the truth. It's only a handful of tribes that continue to be successful at gaming. Meanwhile, all these issues that we're talking about, the issues of sterilization policy, people might not even know that existed. Mm -hmm. People might not even know that the first governor in the state of California put out bounties on the California Indian people against their souls. And they got paid when they brought dead Indian people in to show that they killed Indian people to get paid the militia dollars that the state approved by the first governor and the legislature, and then got reimbursed by the federal government for that money that came through. And then we have a governor, the governor, Governor Gavin Newsom in, in 2019, issued for the first time in the history of the state of California, apology for the atrocities and genocide inflicted on the California Indian people. And so that mentality happened so far back in history, the mentality of viewing California's first people as something less than human so they could continue to move forward and take what they wanted, right? And it started with the Russian exploration, the the Spanish era, right, with the mission systems that led to the Mexican rule, the U.S. rule, ultimately the state of California. But the mentality towards the Indian people here in the state of California started with those early explorations of the Russian and the Spanish. That's why it's so um, it's so important to get into the educational components of educating the factual truth of what truly happened here in the state of California. The third and fourth grade, learning about those in your own backyard, the Ohlone people out there where UC Berkeley is, in our area, the Serrano Cahuilla people, on the state capitol, the Miwok, Nisenan people. What truly happened in that history? Because the history that's been taught has been taught by those who have oppressed the people that they're talking about. Now's the time for that voice to have that oppressed, the, the, those people that were oppressed, to be able to tell that story and correct the history in the state of California. And we continue to work and we continue to see the issues that affect the state of California. And as a California Indian person, I've sat on the different boards in, in our local area, County Board of Supervisors, State Board of Education, and homelessness has always been a number one issue that's there, as well as mental health. And one of the areas that we have dived into is working with our youth, our homeless youth. When I left San Bernardino County, there was over 50,000 homeless youth that were attending our local schools, K through 12. And if we want to be more proactive to that situation, that's where we need to dive in, our homeless youth population, getting them the resources that are there and tackling the mental health component. People will start to see and start to talk about our economy needs to open up and move forward. But there's no way that we could talk about moving our economy forward unless we're going to start to talk about 
the mental health component and the mental health stability of those being asked to go back into the classroom, the stability of the mental health of those being asked to open back up their business, and the mental health stability of the consumer that's asked to now um, be part of the economic recovery. You know, it strikes me, um, well, I'm looking at some of the audience questions, and, and I think there's like a handful around this question of people and corporations leaving California because of the expense, um, citing high taxes, um, saying it's too hard to live here. On the other hand, I have a bunch of questions from people saying, isn't this all about wealth disparity? Shouldn't we tax the rich more? Should we repeal Prop 13? Um, Senator Caballero, let's start with you there. Like, First of all, is is it true? Are we seeing a huge exodus out of this state? Is that something that you worry about as a, as a policymaker? And how do you kind of balance those two things, which is, you know, we never have enough resources to do all the, the work, but you also don't want to dis, you know, discourage innovation and, and all those other things. Well, I think I think you said it right, which is that we don't want to discourage innovation and we want to, um, we, we, we are known for um, we are known for losing industries, whether it's the, um, the, um, oh gosh, I had a total blank. Uh, back in the, in the seventies, we lost all of these, these companies that did aerospace work, right? And Los Angeles in particular was devastated, but we, we, um, we shifted and we, we brought in all of these, these, um, the Silicon Valley had just exploded and has become a, a real center of innovation um, from the, not only on, on the tech stuff, but also on the pharmaceutical um, uh, world as well. And so um, there will always be individuals that leave to look for a way to save money in another state. I'm that's, that's just the way it is. Um, I think the reality of the situation is that California's um, migration, whether it's in or out, has stayed relatively um, uh, uh, level yeah. over the years. And you always hear about this rush of, of businesses that are leaving the state and it's going to be tragic and, you know, we're going to hell in a handbasket and, you know, the national state, they, they were ready to kiss the California goodbye and uh, a couple of years ago. And, um, and, and we defy, we defy all of that because the bottom line is that um, we have some of the most progressive policies in terms of leading the world in uh, innovation and in, in climate change, quite frankly, despite um, what was happening on the national stage. And so the, 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 I think the real issue is, is this um, there's there, if you ask people in the state of California, whether they believe we ought to tax the wealthy more, um, the percentage is very high that they support that idea. Um, I think we need to be careful because we need to figure out how do we, and, and there's no question there's this imbalance of income. How do we create an opportunity for people at the bottom of the income scale to be able to earn a better living um, without it being from the government, right? In other words, right now we're going to have to subsidize some of that through the earned income tax credit, which is a great way to put money into the hands of people that um, are working 
but aren't earning enough money. And what we have to do, I think, is do the, uh, the training. I think our, we have one of the best educational systems, but we're, we need to do a lot more in that area. Um, and, and in particular, have to do it. I think Nancy was talking about having the unenviable uh, number, number one in, in single women. I, she's either number one or number two. I've heard that Merced County is number one. And so we can fight over who's got the most, yep. the most um, in that category. The, the yeah. depressing part about, about it is that if we know this, what are we doing about it? What, you know, what can we do? How, how can we, it's first, it's understanding it. Is it the is it an educational issue? Is it um, um, child care support issue? Um, we, we've got to figure this out. I think we're we're real committed to it. But the other part of it is that um, we've got to be able to create jobs all over the state. The, the, the economic recovery, if you look at where it was felt the most, was in in the Silicon Valley and that in the Bay Area. The rest of the state has not made it up for the losses that they suffered in 07, 08, and 09, where people lost their homes. And so we've got to figure out how to be able to get resources so that we can, if it's education, it's education. If it's building, it's doing the, the building work that put people to work. Um, it, it, I think I guess the challenge that we have is, again, gets back to equity. How do we figure out how to do this in a way that um, that it's felt all over the state, because um, I, it's it's my belief that people are really looking for um, they're looking for hope, and hope is when people are earning a good salary. They 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 can come home, pay their own bills, and that's good for the state and local government coffers. Yeah, um, I have a question from from an attendee asking whether um, California should be looking at its own Green New Deal to, to deal with all climate change, but also to sort of jumpstart the economy. Assemblymember Chu, is that is that on the table? Absolutely. It's something we've been talking about for a number of years. I know it's sort of aspirational at some levels, but I would say in California, we are really trying to figure this out. I'll give one example of uh, a bill that I recently introduced. Um, right off the coast of California, 20 to 30 miles out, we get enough offshore wind. If we had enough offshore wind turbines to literally meet all of the energy needs of our state, we haven't tapped it. Uh, and so we are having a conversation right now in the legislature just about how we move this forward. There are many examples of new technologies that are being innovated in the great state of California. And, you know, you asked a question before about whether California has seen its best days. And uh, it reminded me of that quote of Mark Twain about how, uh, you know, reports of my demise are greatly exaggerated. There's a reason why California has been the fifth largest economy in the world. The innovation that we have, the venture capital community, the entrepreneurs uh, and the workforce, our educators, the fact that this is uh, a forum that is being hosted by uh, the best public university system in the country. Um, these are our strengths. And of course, there are issues that we have to tackle. There are more things we can do uh, to, to help our workforce and to move our economy along. But, but I wouldn't write us off yet. And I would say when it comes to clean energy and, uh, and, and creating new green and clean, um, we are figuring this out right now in a lot of different contexts. And I'm pretty bullish on it. Yeah. I mean, Marisa, yeah. I just want to add one quick thing. And so, you know, we're doing this forum in uh, the Bay Area. And so I imagine that we, we have been acutely aware 
of some exodus because, and this was an LA Times article recently that uh, it was actually policy lab that did the study. It's unfortunately our friend, Mr. Chu's district that is losing the folks. I mean, the, the, the main parking is excellent right now. The main exodus or shift in population has been San Franciscans leaving San Francisco, but Contrary to all these claims, like they're all going to Texas and all, they've in fact moving to other parts of California. I think and mostly to Alameda. In the- I know a lot of these, but also the Sierras, different communities in the Sierra, because the tech companies have allowed them to. So anyway, so there's, there's as my colleague, Senator Caballero pointed out, there's always a lot of myths. During the whole recession, it was like, ah, every business has left California, Texas, taking them all. You know, no. You know, they're there. Yes, we always have some businesses leave. We always have some grow and expand. We always have some new ones start. We will see after a year or two whether any of these terrible predictions are. But there is been a shift of population out of San Francisco, whether that's permanent or not. I think this opening up of being able to work from home and many companies saying that they're willing to allow that work for home, potentially even permanently, you know, causes demographic shifts. And we'll see whether that, uh, you know, how that parcels out in the end, you know, does it open up some more housing units in uh, San Francisco or does it unfortunately put more housing pressure on those areas where these folks have left but into or moved to independent of that we have to build more housing. But Elon Musk left. I mean, isn't that. Everything. Well, Elon, you know, he may come back, you yeah. know, it's look, his yeah. companies are still many of their factories right here right right here right. so no, i'm i know it's i think yeah. you know often there's a there's a bit of uh east coast media bias in a lot of these stories uh, and texas problem, media bias yeah. <laughs> yeah you represent a district that I mean, I'm familiar with because my husband grew up in the high desert. So I'm just going to make a like broad generalization here and say it's 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 I mean, it's less blue for sure than some of the members here. But it's also I think a place where people might be a little more skeptical of government to begin with. And I think a lot of people have lost faith in government from top to bottom during this pandemic. So how are you talking to your constituents about rebuilding that trust and and sort of trying to move forward? Because, I mean, you can go down the list from schools to the health system. It's been, it's been a rough year for everyone. Uh, It definitely is. And and the district that we represent in the Inland Empire, there is a a lot of um, areas, the cities that we represent, Rancho Cucamonga, um, City of Redlands, Highland, Loma Linda, and San Bernardino um, to some extent. Um, But there is that that big um, distrust um, in, in government. And, and when you see and you hear that, that the budget has a surplus, then automatically there comes, well, you know, now that we have that extra money, can't you use it for these different programs? Um, but you also see um, businesses, businesses that are truly struggling, small businesses that are going out of business. And how do they gain that trust back from their elected leaders, right? And so we have to be able to um, balance some of the discussion that's going and taking place in the state legislature, which my colleagues and us have done a great job at understanding the differences that different districts bring to the table in the state of California. Certainly in our district, and those know that small business is an area that we continue to talk about, protecting small businesses, particularly um, 25 employees or less. 
Um, and why that number is there is because when the minimum wage um, was moved forward, um, businesses would have to um, move forward and get to that $15 level over a period of year. But there was also that, that one year to catch up for businesses with less than uh, 25 employees or less. So we continue to uh, advocate on those behalves and standing up for a lot of those issues. Now, the distrust um, continues, um, even in the topic as far as um, is it true, is it fact or myth that, that businesses are leaving the state of California to Texas or Arizona? But there's also the, uh, the, the facts and myths at the local level that the government has put so much burden on businesses that they can't even survive. However, there's businesses that truly do open up. There's some businesses that close up. And there's businesses that have weathered the storm. I think looking at a lot of the issues from, from the levels and the infrastructure, from the business owner to the, the, the person they pay the lease to and the bank that owns the lease, there has to be that full discussion if we're truly talking about easing the burdens on businesses. And in our area, and the question is, how do we deal with our constituency in our area when we know there's a big distrust in government to begin with? is by taking those questions and advocating on their behalf and making sure that we add that to the table for the larger discussion at the state legislature, which we've been successful at um, working with um, our counterparts and our legislative colleagues. We're going to have to leave it there. I'm personally um, just really grateful for you all being here and especially grateful that you all made it through this hour without getting called back, although... Hopefully that, that doesn't mean you're going to have a much later night. Um, Assemblymember Ramos, Assemblymember Chu, Senators Caballero and Skinner, thank you all. Um, we did not solve the world's problems in this hour, but I think we, we, we started. So I appreciate it. And Professor Small, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you very much, Marisa. We appreciate your skillful and easygoing, well, provocative and thoughtful interventions and moderation. Thank you, Senator Ana Caballero, Assemblymember David Chu, Assemblymember David, uh, James Ramos, and Senator Nancy Skinner. We appreciate the time that you shared with us tonight. I join Marisa in thanking you wholeheartedly for staying with us the whole time, sharing your thoughts, your insights, and your advocacy. And as an educator, I'd like to say that I sincerely appreciate your recognition of the role of education in general, and the role of the UC and CSU systems in particular. Thank you to all our co-sponsors and to everyone who joined us tonight. And on behalf of my colleagues and students at the Institute for the Study of Societal Change, I'd like to wish you all a very pleasant evening and success in your future endeavors. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.